Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. There was a moment in early 2020, and this moment may have happened to you, when life narrowed and it felt like there were pretty much only two things left, my family and the grocery store. The grocery store was keeping us alive. It was also the only place to go and the only thing to do. It wasn't a great time, unless maybe you owned a grocery store? 2020 is without a doubt the worst year of my life. It has been a horrible year, and I think that's true for many of the people listening to this show. That's John Mackey, who in 1978, along with his girlfriend, started a food store called Safer Way. More than 40 years later, he is still running that store. Only somewhere around 1980, its name changed. You know it as Whole Foods. I I just really want to get... I want to get post-COVID and begin to start to return to some semi-normalcy, even though it may not be quite the same for a long time as we were pre-COVID. Mackey told me that 2020 has sucked. Those are his words, not mine. But the notion that grocery stores have been at the center of the action, that is totally true. And it's partly because restaurants everywhere have lost so much sales, people are cooking more at home. So we've particularly seen our meat chicken and seafood sales just explode in the company. And, and, uh, and, and also produce and grocery, they've also gone way up. People are cooking more. That's just the best way okay. to look at it. And uh, that's been good for not just Whole Foods, that's been good for supermarkets everywhere. There've been, a, if, you, if, you, if you Google it or read up on it, you'll see that Kroger and Walmart and, and everybody's had, and Alberson, Safeway, Publix, mm. HEB, Wegmans, They've all had large increases in sales, the ones that are public. We know this for sure. But in this year, when the role of the grocery store in our lives came to be, well, a lot bigger than we ever could have imagined, here's a question for you. Where did Megamarts, overflowing with seemingly endless varieties of Cheerios and Oreos and salsa, where did they come from? How do they try to shape what we buy? How do they get us to buy one brand over another? We have options at our hands that the richest kings in the past didn't, you know, pharaohs, lords, leaders, they they didn't have these options that we browsing like, you know, don't even register because we think of it as such a chore to have to pass them and sift through them. Benjamin Lohr is a writer. He had been working for years and years on a book called The Secret Life of Groceries, The Dark Miracle of the American Supermarket. It was slated to come out in 2020. Only thing was, who really cares about grocery stores? Yes, they quietly form a safety net in our lives. We could not live without them. But hardly anyone ever thinks about that. Of course, Moore did, but he was in the minority. And then the pandemic hit. And then I was just like, okay, like everybody's eyes are being widened in a similar fashion, um, which was kind of amazing to see. Actually, Laura argues, grocery stores have always been amazing to see. They're a classic example of American ingenuity and the belief that way, way too much, it's never quite enough. Who needs 100 varieties of chips, 50 types of ice cream? We do. And even more options wouldn't hurt. Which brings us to Rome, 1956. When the Italians first saw that, they lost their minds. There's like press reports of women running up and down the aisle screaming, this is heaven. And, and other people just standing goggle-eyed, shrieking with delight. They had just never seen anything like it. What they had never seen was an American supermarket 
actually a mock-up of an American supermarket. The U.S. Department of Agriculture had set it up at the 1956 International Food Conference. And compared to a real American supermarket, Ben Lohr says, the demo was pretty small potatoes. So this is the first time that an American-style supermarket exists outside of America. Supermarket is, is American as jazz or like, uh, you know, the T-shirt. And it was invented here. Um, so outsiders really had no idea what to behold. And this was a very modest staging, only 2,500 brands, which compared to today's supermarket of 65,000 different stock-keeping units, you know, it's, it's minuscule. But as Laura noted, that didn't stop people from losing their minds, from falling in love. One attendee said, quote, it must be heaven. There are mountains of food. Pope Pius XII offered his blessing. Americans have been blasé about supermarkets for a long time, but people from other countries have mostly been awed by them. Boris Yeltsin visited this Randall's in Texas while he was touring the Kennedy Space Program. And he was filled with kind of an, I think he calls it like an, a despair for the Soviet people, because he realized that if they saw the options that were available in this supermarket, which he just stopped by on his tour, it was not like the centerpiece of his tour, that, that, that they would demand a revolution. The realities of the American supermarket are strange. It's a little shocking to find out why one brand of popcorn is stocked over another. It's even more shocking to find out how that brand of popcorn got to the shelves of your local Mega Mart. But we're going to get to all that. First, how was the supermarket created? And why was it created in America? Well, time travel for just a minute with me here to the 1800s, to a scene you probably know from movies, from TV shows and books, a visit to the general store. And the general store was about the size of a small convenience store today. And it sold general goods. And, and that was really what, the, what was the closest thing to a grocery store. You know, it sold boots. It sold drugs in the form of laudanum and opiates, maybe in little vials. It sold animal feed. And it sold some, some food that would come in big barrels, uh, dried fruits that would have to be chiseled out. And... A few things marked the general store. One, it was the clerk would handle all purchasing. So okay. you would hand a list over. He would stand on the other side of the counter. It was, it was a he. And he would fill that list for you. And all the options that he would fill it with were kind of anonymous bulk. They, they didn't have brands. Okay, so you went in and you were like, I want this much cheese or this much flour, and he measured it out for you. Yes, okay. yes. And there were price tiers for rich and poor people actually based on the cut of the produce. So like you could sell the nice produce for higher cut and then sell kind of the second rate produce for, for cheaper. Several big shifts happen to kind of bring us to the grocery store of today. First is packaging. And you don't think of like the cardboard box as being a seismic invention, but it, but it really was. And cardboard, paperboard, paper bags, all around the Civil War, uh, Napoleonic Wars led to advances in tinning and, and glass preservation. These all kind of come down at once. And so all of a sudden there's all this packaging to put this anonymous bulk in. And once you have packaging, it demands an insignia and it mm. demands a brand on right. it. And so all of a sudden customers had choices to make when they went to the grocery store and they wanted to touch the stuff themselves. They didn't want a clerk 
behind there giving them anonymous things. They wanted the clerk giving them exactly what they wanted. Um, And so the package became this form of security choice and a place to put a lot of meaning into. So when you are buying something, you could you choose the option that was, you know, a gift for your for your son or or an act of devotion by saving money. Um, and, and all of that choice sifting, a gentleman named Clarence Saunders who would mm-hmm. go on to, to found a chain called the Piggly Wiggly. And he kind of put all those puzzle pieces together in the Piggly Wiggly. And it was a gr- first kind of modern grocery store, which is to say that he let people touch the goods. He forced them on kind of an Ikea-like path through the grocery store so they would see everything and kind of like really put the like choosing in front of them. Okay. So it's like you go, when you go on through a maze, you inevitably encounter a few things that. That's right. Yeah. And it allows all this cost saving too, because instead of having clerks do all this work, you just have stock boys. And then about 10, 15 years later, a gentleman named uh, Michael Cullen invents the first supermarket, which essentially just takes the Clarence Sonder models and puts it on steroids. It just blows it up. And people would drive from 50 miles away just to come to a store because it was this thing that no one had ever seen before. And that, of course, drove more purchases, which, of course, drove uh, lower margins. And it became the dominant model almost instantaneously. So let me just pick up on that idea of uh, doing a lot of volume, thin margins, and and the notion of like every time you go to the store and pick up a box of graham crackers, the store doesn't make a whole lot. But when you buy a lot of graham crackers or when people buy a lot of graham crackers, then the store is doing okay. One of the things that shocked me that you write about is we think, oh, that's my favorite pasta or that is my favorite chocolate bar. But it turns out that it's really hard to get those things on the shelves. Um, how do those things get on the shelves? Yeah, well, it's hard. Yeah, <laughs> it's extremely difficult. And I think I was uh, disabused of the notion that I could just you know bottle up my favorite guacamole, which I, you know I make a mean guacamole, and get it on the <laughs> shelf because it's there's a lot of hoops to to jump through. So I guess number one in terms of counterintuitive things. To get on a shelf, you're competing not just against other guacamole manufacturers, if you were in my case, but you're competing against the store itself. And partly because those margins are so low, a lot of supermarkets have quietly kind of reinvented how they're making a profit. And they charge manufacturers price to get on shelf for inches of shelf space. And there's a variety of different names for these fees. Um, You know, they're straight up slotting fees, which is just inches for shelf space anywhere in the store. So we're not talking about end caps uh, or these kind of promotional banks at the end of aisles where you kind of know somebody is, there's some, you know, promotional fee aspect to that. That's not free space, that's premium space. But I'm talking about just space on a shelf anywhere. But then there's all these other ticky tacky ways they come for manufacturers from, you know, in-store advertising on in-store magazines or in-store radios for free cases of food called free fill to buy one, get one freeze that, that the manufacturer has to support. And they do this because it is just rocket fuel to the bottom line. In the book, I talked to the former head of grocery for Whole Foods, and he he calls it crack. You know, it's an industry-wide crack. He's like, everyone's addicted to this. We can't get away from it because if you're having a bad year and you just charge an extra fee, your your bottom line fattens up a little bit and, and, and you can breathe a little easier. 
it kind of it forces a ramp up. And, and so you see a lot more people have to get like venture funding. The, the cost of entry has just gone up. When I was writing the book, the cost of a frozen skew for nationwide rollout, and a, a skew, I should say, is a stock keeping unit, which is just an individual product. So this is like the cost to get something of yours in the freezer, like ice cream. Or, is that? That's know? right. Or okay. like peas uh-huh. is what was, was like one million dollars. Uh, for a single item. That's just, that's not the cost of the item. That has nothing to do with your manufacturing costs. That's the cost you're paying for nationwide rollout to the, the grocery stores. So, I mean, I know like in radio, pay to play is not something you're supposed to do. The idea of like, you know, the record company gives a, mm-hmm. you know, chunk of change to the DJ and is like, uh, play this Play this, you know, stars. Right, Right, exactly. You're not supposed to do that. But it sounds like in the grocery industry, that's pretty much what you do. That is exactly what you do. And in one ways, you again, you can think of it, the grocery store is a landlord and they're leasing space. And okay, you do that computation in your head. You're like, I guess that's fair. It's kind of like many platforms, like the App Store and Apple is kind of embroiled in a similar dispute right now with with people who are like, oh my God, Apple's charging 30% to get our apps on there. And other people are like, well, Apple made this platform, Mm. so therefore they're allowed to do this, right? You can have that debate. But what's interesting about the grocery stores as consumers, you don't think about that. You think, oh, I'm going into the store and I'm getting the best food and somebody here has selected the best food. And it's like, nah, they probably didn't. They selected the food that like hit certain criteria that didn't have much to do with taste, but did have a lot to do with like slotting fees, maybe with like shelf life, stable of the underlying commodities. These other factors that aren't necessarily consumer forward don't necessarily benefit the consumer, but we kind of take for granted and, and give them a pass on. Let's take a quick pause here. I'm talking with Ben Lohr. He's the author of The Secret Life of Groceries, The Dark Miracle of the American Supermarket. When we come back, we're going to move from the incredible amount of cash that you have to hand over, apparently, just to get stores to stock your frozen peas, to the strange route that grocery store products travel to get to you and the people who live along that route. From GBH Radio and PRX, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. One of the strange things about our relationship with food is that we spend so darn little on it. We, as Americans, spend the least of our income of any country on our food. And, you know, we take it pretty much completely for granted. That's Benjamin Lohr, the author of the book, The Secret Life of Groceries, The Dark Miracle of the American Supermarket. We've become addicted to low prices and we've come to expect them in a way that tilts the entire system. There's a ton of bad incentives in the grocery industry and the you know, the, the competition for lowest price, which you see at every level from checkout on down to, to, to manufacturers, you know, outsource manufacturers then jockeying for price and outsourcing labor. Um, that trickle down effect is has enormous negative consequences, which I, I, I get into in the book, but they're extremely bleak. And we will get into some of those consequences But like seemingly everything else in America, there's also a bifurcation in grocery spending. 
There are folks who want bargains, and then there are those who are willing to pay a little bit more. John Mackey, the CEO of Whole Foods, a company that people sometimes jokingly refer to as Whole Paycheck, told me, look, if food is super important to you and part of how you see yourself, cost might not be the only bottom line. Why do people buy Teslas or BMWs or Lexuses or, I mean, why do they buy those cars? There's every category of consumer goods you can think of. There is a quality category for it, from clothing to cosmetics to cars people drive to the houses they buy. That attitude has profited Mackey handsomely for more than 40 years, ever since he co-founded the company in the late 1970s, and particularly since 2017, when Amazon wanted in on the grocery game and they acquired Whole Foods. Whole Foods, you know, we're not trying to market to more affluent people. We're trying to market to people that really want to eat the highest quality foods. And there is some correlation with income on that, but, but that's what we're going for. And there is a significant market of people that want the best. They want the best produce. They want the best meat. They, be, they want the best seafood. They want good service. They want to shop in a beautiful environment. And that's what Whole Foods is trying to do. That's, that's our business strategy. I would say that sounds exactly right. I think there are price tiers. He clearly knows his demographic really well. And Whole Foods is offering this premium. But, but part and parcel of that premium has always been the Mother Earth green and sense that you can be part as a consumer of making a better world. And I think within that value frame, they're still seeking like a cheap value. So it's like their values shopper seeking a good bargain. <laughs> and I, I would worry that Whole Foods is kind of moving away from that, those, those ideals, both the Mother Earth and the like, you can create a better world in its, its move with Amazon. Benjamin Lohr actually worked in the seafood section of a Whole Foods for a while while researching his book. The supermarket raised its minimum wage to $15 an hour in 2018 under Amazon's direction. But Lohr found that working there was a hard job. He met people who had been working a long time to climb up the ranks and get a steady paycheck. And remember that lots of grocery stores pay considerably less, which brings us back to how much we spend on food, about 10% of our budget, our disposable income. Back in 1950, folks spent more like 30%. In 1900, it was 40%. So how did we go from spending 40% of our money on food to 10%? Well, first of all, innovation. There was agricultural innovation, computerized logistics and supply chains, advanced manufacturing, and also, Moore argues, an economic approach that says... Anything that's good for consumers is good for America. So if we can get consumers a lower price, that is what good equals. And there's a lot to argue for that perspective. But people forget that you know, every consumer is also a laborer. And especially in a world where there's a lot of economic disparity. And so the people who are making the policy are probably not the people who are working the jobs. Uh, you have, you know, created the conditions where there can be really nasty consequences that aren't felt by the people who are advocating for this low cost for consumers is good. And I think that's pretty much where we've arrived right now, where the laborer is bearing the burden of our addiction to low prices. 
One of those laborers is a trucker that Moore refers to as Lynn, though that's not her real name. And interestingly, she does one of the most popular and underappreciated jobs in the U.S. So first of all, just some numbers. There's 10.7 billion tons of freight per year that gets shipped around the country, which breaks down to 350 pounds per person per day. So that means on your behalf today, there's 350 pounds of stuff moving around and on my behalf. Yeah, it's incredible. And and truckers always say everything comes to you on a truck. That's like one of their favorite things to say when you hang out (laughs) with truckers. But it's true. Like there is nothing in your life that doesn't get delivered to you on a truck. Now, whether that's all OTR trucking, which is like long haul trucking on highways or like last mile trucking. But one way or another, the objects of your life have been touched by a trucker. And so what's going on in the trucking industry is, is extremely important. And it really mirrors in kind of a dark mirror sort of way the changes of the grocery store writ large. Trucking has become fantastically more efficient over the last 40 years. It has become deregulated. In the book, I say deregulated to extremists from the point of view of the trucker, meaning to de- to the death of the trucker, because the individual trucker is 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 essentially a commodity. So during the book, I hung out with a, a woman I call Lynn Riles, who was working seventy to eighty hour weeks. She was working so hard that she never had a chance to see her mother over the last two years. She couldn't find routes that intersected with her mother's home. She was living in her truck, essentially in in the cab, in a a bed, didn't have a a separate home, and was grossing $200,000 a year for all that effort, which sounds pretty good, but was taking home about $17,000 for those 70 to 80 hour weeks uh, spent in like this extreme state of vigilance. Trucking is not an a job where you can kind of snooze, obviously. You cannot dabble on the internet. You can't check your Twitter feed. And it was amazing. The week I was with her, she took home $100 because of all these ticky-tacky fees that were extracted directly from her paycheck. And in many ways, this system is exactly what was intended by the deregulation of the trucking industry. It changed a job that had been highly unionized. You know, we have the the 1970s Smokey and the Bandit image of the outlaw blue collar trucker in our head. And and that was kind of real. That trucker was like a, was blue collar, but made a decent wage because of the strong unions. And it gutted that and created a commodity truck industry where carriers were jockeying for position and the individual trucker was someone who was completely disposable. I was going to ask you, when you spent time with her and you see like she has no home, um, she's working these incredible hours trucking, um, you say she's got like some health issues, she has these dogs she loves, but she's in debt on the vet bills. Um She's drinking Pepsi for the calories because she doesn't really have a lot of money. Uh, and uh, do you feel like this is how our food system is stitched together? Uh, absolutely. I did not choose her because she was a sob story that is some uniquely miserable part of the trucking industry. I thought that she was very exemplary of 
what it is to be a female trucker. And that's something we, we didn't even touch on at all. Right. The, the, she's, she was, she's a woman. About 5% of truckers are. And it's a horrendously sexist industry. And the hurdles faced by female truckers are, especially during training, when you're kind of paired with a male trainer and you live in this cab together, you're driving you know, essentially endless days because you're driving team, which means one person drives and then the other, then you switch off and on and off and on. So you're kind of living on top of each other. You don't have to spell it out, but the, yeah. the opportunities for abuse are, are are obvious and and they absolutely happen. Every every female trucker I talked to either had a story of abuse or knew someone who had been abused. That was a universal. So yeah, that is. The flip side to deifying the consumer as policy is that the laborer gets shredded. So let me go uh, back a little further. So the trucks get us the food um, in the grocery store. But, you know, part of this incredibly complex um, computerized supply chain is that things can come to us from anywhere in the world. And you spent a lot, a little bit of time talking to somebody who has helped um, fill the American desire for shrimp, which um, I think Americans probably don't realize it in large part, but uh, much of it comes from Thailand. You want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah, this was really my attempt to get to the bottom of the commodity chain. So I talked a little bit about how trucking had become a commodity industry. And commodities, of course, underpin all of our products. And I wanted to, I guess... I walked into this book thinking, okay, the supply chain, it's pretty straightforward. I can visualize it like these flow chart, you know, the, these right. little boxes with arrows. And it just turns out that to fuel the continuous supply of, say, shrimp, but it's true for coffee, it's true for chocolate, it's true for beef, it's true for, for any other commodity out there. To fulfill that continuous supply it takes such an enormous volume that there is no clarity. There is no flow chart that kind of just encapsulates it. It's a, it's a ravenously hungry thing sourcing from all over and sourcing to very specific specifications. That, that is, you know, what it means to, to enter into the commodity game. You, you become this kind of abstracted version of whatever food product it is that hits these key details. So, I wanted to understand what that meant, and, and and I guess the more that I understood just how big it was, I became aware of just what that size hid in the sense that it manufacturers will say, like, I don't have visibility in my supply chain, meaning they can't see all the way to the ways that they're uh, aggregators are aggregating it uh, okay. from from the raw materials. All that lack of visibility just pr produces lots of places for bad actors to kind of hide out, uh, take advantage of the system, and uh, ultimately exploit people to get that advantage. And so in Thailand, I went to the bottom of the shrimp commodity chain, which starts with raw material extraction. It's most most Thai shrimp is farmed, but farmed shrimp is still carnivorous. Carnivorous shrimp still needs to eat fish. And so the bottom of the Thai commodity chain is these fishermen known as trash fishermen that pick up the small left behind fish that bigger fishers used to discard right back into the ocean, but now can be turned into fish meal, okay. um, which can be used to, to feed the shrimp. 
And I talked to a number of fishers who worked in that industry. And it is something where human trafficking and human bondage uh, is, is endemic. You know, when I went to Thailand, the, the numbers were 15 to 60 percent of fishers involved in this were enslaved laborers. And by I used the word slave carefully, but they were bought or sold forced to work at the threat of being beaten, watched their fellow workers get killed if they didn't, couldn't hack it. And so I, I really, there's not much, not many other words in the English language that kind of do justice to that being held against your will for, for, for years at a time. These workers were, you know, f- fundamental to getting the low prices in the Thai shrimp industry at that time. So that, I mean, that's an interesting question, which is shrimp does not have to be cheap. There are things that are not cheap um, yeah. in the grocery store. Why Why did we get into this, you know, situation of human bondage and, 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 and people unable to get away from their jobs and, and unable to, you know, really have any kind of autonomy over their own lives? to make shrimp cheap like well there's two levels to this question unfortunately and there's like and it really gets to the dark deepest questions on like how societies are structured yeah. and how this world is structured but like on one level we got to it because that's what the whole grocery store is designed to do the whole grocery store is designed to, to take something like shrimp which as you know tote was a luxury item in you know up through the 80s still has that like country club quality you could see shrimp being served on a silver plate with with cocktail sauce right right uh and and it was quite expensive priced you know right next to steak and then the whole system is designed oh if we have this thing and we can innovate we can get it cheaper and 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 farmed fishing did that and and one of the unintended consequences of farm fishing was that we needed this supply of fish meal and then you know the the fish meal boats within their isolation provide the perfect situation for this labor abuse and and so it it all kind of stems from these like incentive chain on the other hand I think there's a very real thing going on, which is the men and women that were enslaved were there because of global inequities that are have nothing to do with the grocery store. Um, so they were coming from um, Myanmar largely, but also Laos and Cambodia. The gentleman I followed closely for the book was was a Mon Burmese man. And he was coming from a country that was essentially starving to death. There was no jobs where he where he grew up. And so he went to Thailand to get a better life. And in that process, because there is no smooth way to go to Thailand, at least for him, coming from a completely abjectly poor background, he wasn't connected to the systems that would allow him to do that legally, made him extremely vulnerable to these to these traffickers. And then he found himself kind of ensnared in the system. I think ultimately that gradient of poverty and the fact that Thailand as a wealthy nation existed next to these poorer nations and these these jobs has much more to do with it than the the global commodity chain. And I think it has to, you know, when we think about how we're going to root out these problems, I think that's really important to bear in mind that you're not going to reform a supply chain 
by choosing to buy the right type of shrimp. These factors are way bigger. If you want to reform the the problem with with Thai slavery, you know, these are these are immigration problems, these are wealth inequity problems, these are how do we build a functioning economy and, and uh, huge questions that I don't right. have answers for and right. the book can't address. Right. Right. But but it it made me very skeptical of the notion that by purchasing the right things and by focusing on the grocery store level, we can solve these problems. And maybe that feels like letting these chains off the hook, but it's not to say they shouldn't be working to solve these problems. It, I just came to the conclusion it was out of their control. Let's take our last break here. And when we come back, another way that price shapes your grocery experience that's kind of hard to imagine. On our website, we're going to have more about the people and the industries that we've talked about, plus a look at the tremendous food insecurity America is currently grappling with. From PRX and GBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. When Benjamin Lohr was 19, he lived without a supermarket. I had been working as a field researcher in the Kakamega Rainforest, which is in western Kenya and had no running water, no electricity, no post office, no nothing, no this, no that. We did our, we hand washed our clothes. We took showers from rainwater that we collected. Uh, and I was living there. And you know, you adjust to those rhythms. But then he came back to America and he went shopping for food. It was borderline traumatic. It was like, a you know, it was my memory of it is like this flashbulb style memory that's very crystal clear. Like I can remember walking through that first grocery store and feeling like odd. And I think that's something that a lot of people have felt it is, you know, it's almost like a cliche experience of like the traveler coming back. But for me, it was eye-opening. Indeed, somehow it was so eye-opening that Lore would later end up spending years researching the supermarket. How it evolved from the general store of the 1800s, how wild characters like Clarence Saunders, who would go on to found the Piggly Wiggly supermarket chain, realized, wait, couldn't you just adapt Henry Ford's assembly line? But instead of having the products move past the people, couldn't you have the people move past the products? Turned out, yes, you could. And as Lore notes, Saunders, who built himself a pink marble mansion, and Henry Ford, well, they were contemporaries. They were remaking the world at almost exactly the same time. And both of them were inspired by the cafeteria-style restaurant that was kind of sweeping the country in the 1890s as a craze. So these were ideas that were all in the air. And and this idea of kind of putting the work on the customer and creating a smooth, efficient movement through the store was was very much on Clarence Saunders' mind when when he was inventing the grocery store. And efficiency and price They've always been at the core of this modern American marvel, says Lore, who's the author of the book, The Secret Life of Groceries. And one of those secrets, he says, among many that are hiding on miles and miles of long metal shelves, is that the pieces of the grocery industry that are designed to reassure us, they're often more questionable than we might think. 
take certifications, which are those little stamps and labels that something is indeed produced in a particular way, maybe with certain types of labor practices or without certain types of chemicals, or it's appropriate for a certain diet. Well, color lore, skeptical. Yeah, I always love it. a paleo certification. It's like, yeah, just like the cavemen got their 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 paleo stuff certified. Sure, sure. Uh, but yeah, it's just a huge question. Look, I do a deep dive to the extent that uh, that anyone's done a deep dive of this in the book. But the audit system that underpins those certifications right. is a fifty billion dollar per year for profit industry. It is arisen largely because government regulation has failed in this and is not providing any regulatory apparatus for fraud. There are fraud programs, but they, you know, inspect such a small percentage of food that the fraud is still very rampant and the private sector has kind of stepped in. But there are huge structural problems with the audit system, starting with the fact that it's an audit. So it's a snapshot of a given moment. And that type of snapshot approach works tolerably well for things like foodborne illness and like an E. coli infection where there's an empirical thing, it works really badly for something non-empirical like labor abuse or wage abuse, like withholding wages that happened six months ago. How are you going to visit a factory on a one-time visit to take a snapshot look and uncover wage abuse that happened six months ago? The answer is you're not, but you're still going to certify them as fair trade. Okay. And then, you know, there's, there's other compounding factors that right now manufacturers pay for these audits. So the burden is on them. The burden is not on the, the distributor, like the supermarket is not paying for these audits. They, they bake it into the contract that you as a manufacturer need to do this, but it's a for-profit industry. So these manufacturers now can have auditors competing against each other. I was going to gonna offer say, them. if they don't like what you like, if they don't like what the auditor says, if the auditor is like, yeah, this is you're not really running this factory the right way, then they're just like, right. we're going to go with your competitor next time. This is we, we weren't looking for this. That's right. And, and this is a, a bleak picture because I do think people in the audit system they have integrity. They're not shysters. Not all of them. There are some shysters out there, but but they're trying their best. But these are just structural incentives that are baked into the system that's going to undermine even the best intentions. And so I came away pretty, pretty glum on the current systems for certification that are being used. And and I guess I came away almost with like this meta view, you know, it's, it's like airport security. It just began to feel like theater and it began to feel like a very destructive theater because the more audits you have and the more suspicion you have of something, you just want another layer of audit. Oh, you want someone to audit the auditors. <laughs> you know, you want somebody, uh, you, you can't get, you get addicted to this new sense of, of scrutiny and, and there's a failure of, of trust. And so what I, became very interested in in the book and and don't come to great answers because I don't think they're out there. I looked, but is how we put trust back in the system. And you can't put trust back in the system through audits, through scrutiny, through uh, a regime of just checking up on people. And I have to say from the manufacturer's perspective, some of these audits, there's something known as audit fatigue out there where you're a manufacturer, especially a big manufacturer, you might be visited by three different auditors a week 
for different things wow. because they're all these overlapping things. Different stores have different demands and okay. it just becomes like somebody knocking on your door constantly. This is this is not the type of behavior that encourages compliance. It encourages people to like want to beat the system. <laughs> And it's almost always cheaper to beat the system. You know, if you just pay a bribe to an auditor, it's probably better, easier than reforming your entire supply chain. So then when you go to the store yourself, do you just look at things and they say like organic or whatever? And you're just like, whatever. I don't believe that. Oh, God. I know. Nihilism is tempting. I don't do that. I still okay. try. <laughs> I still let me put it like this. I came to believe that reforming the system through those type of purchases is not going to happen. However, on a personal level, I still purchase like that because okay. I don't see a better option. Yeah. But okay. if I'm going to expend my energy as a human being uh, dealing with the wage abuse that I detail in the book, dealing with the human trafficking that I detail in the book, debt peonage, I'm not going to think that that's going to be reformed by my purchases at checkout. In fact, I came to see that as extremely extremely like hubristic that I, uh, by spending something on myself to make my life better could also like uh, make the world better. It just began to seem like this total narcissistic dream. But, you know, I, I think the other option of like, no, I'm going to buy the totally, you know, generic thing that I know is, is doing bad things is, is not something that sits well for me. Um, let me ask you about how the grocery store um, moves forward. Um, you talk to uh, this guy who's like this very colorful character, like grocery inter- industry analyst type person um, in L.A. And, yes, Kevin. Uh, right, right. And um, he, I think it sounded like, you can let me know what you think, but it sounded like he was basically like, you know, Everybody is just it's it's a it's a landscape that's ruled by Walmart. People think they can be cute or smart or interesting in the grocery store business. But the big guys are in charge here. Yes. Set, set me so straight, though, if I'm wrong about that. No, no, no. This is Kevin Kelly. He's a brilliant. Uh, he's kind of a re- he's a retail architect. He kind of marries the field of architecture and psychology to kind of think about why people are buying things and, and creating physical spaces that are conducive to buying. And I think his point here is that, look, if you're just trying to play the volume game in 2020 as you know your local independent grocer, like you're going to lose because Amazon is playing the volume game yeah, right now yeah, and they're a lot smarter than you and Walmart's playing the volume game. And you're not, yeah, I think his quote was like, you're not going to build a lumber yard of food that like outdoes Walmart. You're, right. you're just not going to do that. So you have to think differently. And, uh, you know, in the book, I, sp- I spend a lot of time with the late Joe Kaloum, who founded Trader Joe's. And he was someone who really opted out of that volume game as well by saying, I'm going to compete on qualities around the preferences of like a very specific niche demographic. And that Trader Joe's demographic is kind of the overeducated, underpaid, Volvo driving professor. Like Joe, Joe had like this whole That's very specific. Conception. Very, very specific. Well, he, I mean, Joe was a brilliant guy. We didn't talk about him at all, but he fetishized the, demo, the demographics that would make Trader Joe's flourish and then created products for that demographic rather than just serve up the mass generic thing, he he realized that he would have to be 
understand who his customers were and then create offerings that they would be enticed by and that they would find valuable. So they were both, they're low priced, but it's not just low prices. It's low prices for this specific item that you find extremely valuable. So you're right. It's like you might find the lowest price avocado oil at a Trader Joe's that would be something that like, oh, it excites this demographic's eyes. Mm. Oh, um, but you wouldn't necessarily <laughs> find the lowest price corn oil. Like there, there will be a, another chain okay. offering a cheaper oil okay. out there. And, and I, I think what Kevin was alluding to was you need something like that. You know, he right. wasn't necessarily selling the Trader Joe's model, but you need some way of engaging your customers that speaks to those customers. Kevin would study the different consumers making archetypes. He would like literally go follow people out of grocery stores and do interviews with them and ask all about their buying habits and then kind of reverse engineer the grocery store of their dreams. Um, it was fascinating to watch him work and do that. But but that was kind of his answer to to where we need to go with the grocery store. So then to you is the future of the grocery store basically Amazon slash Whole Foods or Walmart or if you're real smart about it, a place like Trader Joe's that just doesn't even try to really be a normal grocery store, just does something real different. Well, the future of the grocery store is going to be interesting. Uh, yes, I think there's going to be a bifurcation. Look, the online spending that came with the pandemic is here to yeah. stay. That shift, you know, was happening already. This just accelerated it. And a lot of these big generic purchases are going to move to that space. But I think that opens up a smaller footprint retailers who can really bring the value they have as kind of quirky individuals who have good taste and, and use that as a filter. Um, I, I think those smaller footprint stores will have to, like in kind of some uh, dialectic response to the shift to the online space. The other thing that I think is really going to happen is someone's going to have to crack the code of how you make the online grocery store experience similar to the physical mm -hmm. walking grocery store experience. Yeah. Like right now, like famously, like millennials don't use lists and everyone like kind of freaks out about this. But right now the online purchasing <laughs> experience is geared around lists, right? It's like, it works really well. If you know exactly what you want to right. buy, then it's a much better, but that's not how I shop. Even though I'm not a millennial, I go to the store and I kind of like think of the meals I'm going to make. And I, it's a disassociative journey. Okay. And that associative journey, I have not yet seen that translated so well into the online space in a way that will like kind of inspire me and offer things. I think it will be done and it can be done, but I think I, I see that as a, a pretty important component of the future of, of the grocery world. Benjamin Lohr is a writer. He's the author of The Secret Life of Groceries, The Dark Miracle of the American Supermarket. Ben, thank you so much for being here. All right. Thank you so much for having me. It was a real pleasure. And finally today, your responses to a recent program on the future of the travel industry, an industry that's seen huge job losses, but... Based on research that we have done in the U.S., in Europe, in Asia, and elsewhere, we believe that there is strong, strong, strong consumer demand to travel again. That's industry analyst Henry Hardevelt. 
For example, 84% or more of the people in these surveys agree with the statement, I can't wait to start traveling again. The desire to travel has not gone away. So we asked you, have you been traveling? What would make you feel safe? And how do you want post-pandemic travel to be different from what came before? I used to be able to take a train home to Detroit from New York, a direct train. I can no longer do that. Betsy Todd is a nurse from Hastings-on-Hudson, New York. She told us she spent years traveling throughout the Northeast by train, to Boston, to Baltimore, to D.C., and she's got dreams of better train travel dancing in her head. With President Biden coming into office um, and his wonderful experience with trains, I'm hoping that he will emphasize train travel as part of our infrastructure in this country, and that he will really push for more federal support for train travel and for modernizing train travel in the U.S. My fear is that people will try to push his wonderful history, his personal history of train travel, into a little box and say, isn't that sweet? It's from a bygone era. That's what he used to do, but we don't do train travel anymore. That would be exactly the wrong way to turn. Meanwhile, Father Thomas O'Neill, a retired priest from Rhode Island, says he has been traveling cautiously over the last several months. It just gets a little tedious being in the same place for me. O'Neill ventured away from his congested neighborhood and went up to northern New England to visit small towns and take in the scenery. So strolling around a little square in Vermont, a town square, where there's a minimum of traffic is just a joy or going up to the dam and walking around there where there's virtually no traffic, or even going to some place like Manchester, Vermont, where there's the traffic is fairly slow and not too bad, and it's easy to ride a bicycle. We always like hearing from you about travel or groceries or anything else. To contact us, head to our website and click on the About tab. We're at innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Solinger, and associate producer Sarah Leeson. We also had production help from Caitlin Falds, who leaves us this week after being a fantastic intern. Thank you, Caitlin. We wish you lots of luck. From PRX and GBH, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub.